Hi, this is Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park Stand-Up Meeting Podcast. Normally, we talk about what we did last week and what we're going to do next week. But since this is the first Friday of the month, we are going to do Friday Questions. This is where we answer all your questions, and uh, this week was uh, a lot of good questions this week, so this may be a long one. So uh, let's see, I am going to ask the questions this week. The first one is from Kai. Will there be graphic filters so we can make the graphics look like a CRT display? Yeah, so we're going to have one special graphic mode that looks like a retro. It's going to be one giant black pixel. Super retro mode. Yeah, super retro mode. So you just like you just stare at a giant black pixel on the screen. And it's... Well, I think the pixel should actually be the average color of all the pixels on the screen. <laughs> oh, so, just, so it just kind of pulses through these weird yeah. little colors. Yeah, you know? see it changes the character walks across. Uh, it yeah. could be a color cycling pixel to be really retro. Well, we could get Mark to do that, and he's yeah, the master yeah. color cycling. So there you go. All right, David Pittman asks, to each of you, do you dislike clowns, and why do you think everybody finds them so unnerving? So we'll start with Gary. Gary. See, now, I've never cared for clowns. I don't know. I always thought they were creepy, and I guess it probably goes back to some sort of childhood trauma since I grew up in the 1950s and 60s. I can't really remember because I think the only time I ever saw clowns when I was younger was in a real circus, and I think the real circus setting was just, you know, traumatic in itself with all of, you know, the animals being beaten and stuff like that. So I just never really found them that engaging. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) What kind of circus did you do? It's the S&M circus. No, I mean, you know, Ringling Brothers and all of those things outlawed having elephants and stuff just recently because they were all so mistreated, apparently. And I'm sure that there's some sort of, you know, sense memory that I have of all of that, having gone to those circuses and watched, you know, lions and tigers and chimpanzees riding on, you know, clowns and, and elephants and stuff like that. So anyway. Well, I do look at pictures of clowns from like the 1950s and stuff, and they really do look creepy. It's like they're just it's it's this really bad makeup and you know strange expressions and I I think I think clowns of that era were a lot more creepy than you know modern day clowns are. I mean the other thing is you know unless you were like really famous like Emmett Kelly or something. I mean what kind of of a life did a guy who was a clown have? You know he probably like you know put on his clown makeup and ran around and then went home and got drunk or something kind of like Ransom. I always say I actually had um, two very positive clown experiences when I was a kid. Um, one was for my, I think it was my eighth birthday, my parents had a clown come and do a magic show. And the cool part was watching him transform himself. He let me come into the, I guess my mother's bedroom, watch him put on his makeup. Mm, David, and... I think there's something creepy about that already. <laughs> it's really, it was cool. <laughs> come so on into actually... my dressing room, little boy. <laughs> yeah, no, just watching him transform himself. And it kind of took away the whatever fear there might have been because i saw i saw it was a real person and i saw him i mean he invited me in so I was watching <laughs> oh, man. the doors were open the doors were open i <laughs> watched him change into his clown clothes david <laughs> um the other was i also when i was a kid there was this television show in los angeles called chuckle the chucko the clown and um he only you know, do cartoons and stuff and i think one time i got to be one of the kids in the in the gallery you know they have like this platform and we played a game we played simon says and i won it and i won a six pack of coke and it was so exciting and um so he took the clown gave me a six pack of coke 
So yeah, I have, I have two good cloud memories. Next question is from Retro. I love the humor and tone in LucasArts Adventures and Thimbleweed Park. Who comes up with the attitude and all the funny stuff? Well, I think that's you know a pretty much a team effort. I mean, that goes all the way back to Lucasfilm. You know, when we were working on those games, I think everybody in the project just contributed jokes and funny stuff, and a lot of it comes from the artists. You know, just when they do funny art and put funny things in the art and stuff. So I think it's a team effort. I think also that you know we were it, it was an interesting time in our lives when we met together at Lucasfilm, and I sort of feel like we all had very similar senses of kind of what was funny and what was you know interesting on the side of the media because we all kind of watched and got a lot of the same humor and I think that it was kind of like being in this club almost where we kind of knew each other we all knew each other's jokes and we kind of extrapolated on that side of the way it felt to me. And it seems like, you know, we just kind of continued on that vein. So that was sort of how it felt to me that we sort of was very collaborative. And everybody also was treated kind of, you know, equally. And everybody's bad ideas were just as good at everybody else's bad ideas. Well, I remember when I came on to Maniac Mansion, you guys had already, and very similar to Thimbleweed Park, both of you guys have already established the, the tone um, through the art and through the storyline. And, you know, it took me a little while to kind of duplicate or try to get into that, into your heads and figure out how to, how to say stuff or whatever so that it would feel like it was coming from the characters. And part of that would be after maybe Ron wrote some dialogue and I kind of said, okay, I, I could do this. And because when I did Zach, it was, it was very different. It kind of evolved in different kind of humor and different direction. But then my co-designer on that, which is Matthew, Matthew Kane, I think we played off each other's humor and kind of went off in a different direction. So it, it definitely evolved for all the games I've worked on. It evolves throughout the game. And I think it's right. It's like the chemistry of the team that kind of pulls it in a certain direction. You want to make it consistent. So everything kind of adjusts everything else. Next question is from Julio. In the demo, I saw that Ransom's flashback begins during a dialogue and the screen becomes all wavy. Will there be some kind of transition between the Axe Monkey Island style or the transitions be smooth? Yeah, in Monkey Island, you know, we had those those place cards, you know, for Act 1, Act 2. The Axe in Thimbleweed Park, I think, are a little bit more porous. You know, they don't they don't necessarily have these points where you'd want to pop up these little um, placard cards. I don't think we've made a complete decision on this yet, but I'm kind of leaning towards there probably will not be, uh, you know, Act transition cards for that. Next question is from Mr. T. Art question for Gary. Do you use any fancy metrics to assess how long it will take to finish a bunch of art assets, or do you just go by crude estimates? Since we don't do anything in a fancy way, I mean, we've tried to with Chase coming on, and we spend a lot of time, well, he spends a lot of time actually putting together charts and graphs. Um, overall, I've still determined that crude estimate te- sends, continues to seem to work the best, because... Uh, it's still hard to sort of figure out, other than in broad strokes, how long it's going to take to do something. So um, right now, I would say we use something that's more like a crude estimate. 
Okay, uh, we decided not to read Christopher Griffin's question, but it is his birthday, so happy birthday. Happy birthday, Christopher. Yay, happy birthday. And David is now going to sing happy birthday to you. I am not. <laughs> I actually sang it last night with a crowd to our, our, my grandson, so that, that's it for my for the money. I guess we have to pay David more money to get him to sing happy birthday. So, <laughs> so how, much, how much would I have to pay you, David, to sing happy birthday on the podcast? I think I'd have to win a... Uh, Enough, enough for so I could then change the way I look and no one recognize me afterwards. All right, next question is from Jacob. What will be the age rating for Thimbleweed Park? Will a 10-year-old be able to play it? Only if they have really irresponsible parents. No, uh, I think it's uh, around PG-13, right? Yeah, that's kind of, I mean, games aren't rated like that, but it. But if you were to apply movie ratings, I would say it's like a PG-13. So I mean, there's definitely some you know edgy stuff in there, but uh, you know it's it's there's no there's no full frontal nudity. Yeah, and if we we bleep Ransom's words out, it's definitely PG-13. I think we're allowed to have like three really bad words and still get PG-13. Yeah, I think you can say you can say like what fuck two 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 times but it can't refer to the sexual act oh, okay you so can just say it as as like a you know fuck you or something like, like that a rock hits you, me in the head and i go fuck yeah i think you can say that two times in a tuna movie <laughs> tuna <laughs> actually that's what we should do we shouldn't we shouldn't beep ransom stuff we should just replace all the swear words with tuna <laughs> All right, Derek Reisdorf asks, Sid from Maniac Mansion, was he named after the C64 Sid Chip, Sid Vicious, Sid Barrett, or was the name simply drawn out of a hat? Gary. Yeah, I mean, I think that in my recollection, you know, the, certainly the, the, the chip had nothing to do with it. There were maybe some musicians we knew that were named Sid, or it seemed like a, a musician's name, but it was kind of pulled out of a hat, I think. Yeah, I mean, Sid really isn't Sid Vicious. You know, I mean, Sid is much more a new wave musician, or Sid Vicious was more of a punk musician. But, but I, I do, I do remember thinking a lot about Sid Vicious. You know, when we were coming up with his with his name. So, all right, Joshua asks, how do you see the chances for young creators in the current gaming business? With all these free dev kits and platforms, do you think it has become easier to make a name for yourself and actually fulfill your projects? I think. I think there's actually two things there. I mean, is it easier to make a name for yourself? I think that's the answer. That's probably no, just because there's so many people doing stuff. But I do think it's actually easier to fulfill your projects because there is there are so many tools out there and there are so many avenues. You know, you can get on the App Store and you get on Steam. You know, you don't need anything to really do that except upload something. So I do think it's a lot easier. But you know, the downside is everybody's doing that. So I think it's just, it's a lot harder to get recognition and to build a successful game. All right. Some old kook asks, what is your philosophy on in-game hints? Everybody seems to have a different view on this. It seems like people have less patience now in playing adventure games, me included in parentheses. I think, you know, my my philosophy on in-game hints is I don't mind hints as long as they're part of the world and part of the fantasy. I don't mind the characters in the game kind of realizing that you might be struggling with a puzzle and then just being a little more specific about what they say. But I don't think that a game should have a hint system. I don't think you should bring up a separate UI and then be able to look up hints for things. So as long as it's kept, you know, within the context of the fantasy, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. So we have a couple of places where we might have a timer, which 
watches to see whether you've done something after a certain amount of time and, and give you a, a subtle reminder to do it, to keep things flowing. And that's kind of a, it's a hint in a, in a way, but it's not, how do I solve this puzzle kind of a hint. Yeah, I think it's just clarifying, right? If the game can kind of clarify what it is that it's asking you to do, and, and sometimes you know, it'll, it will need to clarify that maybe a couple of times, you know, a little bit clearer each time. And I'm okay with that as long as it's the characters in the game that are actually saying it, you know, so it feels like a part of the world. I think part of that comes from the playtesting that we do, where we see if a bunch of people get stuck for a long time in the same place then we might want to do some very subtle changes to push them in a direction. You know, it's like, it's harder for us to, it's hard to know that too ahead of time because we know the answer. So it's hard for us to think all the time, like a person who's never played the game before. So that's why the play tests really work in, in finding where are these, these places where people just get frustrated and stuck and not, not happy. Ulrich 74 asks, when you worked on the Indy 3 adventure game, did you also watch the Indiana Jones 3 movie sometime before it was released in the cinemas? And if so, do you remember there being any differences in the rough cut you saw versus the final theatrical release? Uh, yeah, David and Noah and I, when we worked on the Indy thing, we went down uh, to L.A. to the Paramount lot and we saw a really, really rough screening of the movie before it come out. I think the thing I remember about that movie is you'd be watching the movie and then the whole screen, your know, words would just come up on it and it would just say, you know, you know, missing special effects. And that would, and you just sit there for like 15 seconds and you'd watch this big word on the screen said missing special effects and then the movie would continue. So a bunch of weird stuff like that in that movie. But I think the most interesting thing about that trip down to Paramount was we got to go visit the Star Trek set. <laughs> to me, to me that, that was the highlight. I was much more interested in that than I was seeing the Indiana Jones movie. Um, we, we then saw it again maybe a few weeks later back at the ranch for another screening. And... I, I don't really remember things that were different in the screenings from the final, um, other than the effects missing. Um, we actually were working from a script, and there were things that we saw in the script that were cut from the movie. One thing in particular, that there was a much longer scene with the radio operator in the radio room on, on, the, on the Zeppelin that got cut from the film, and we actually have a more complete version of that in the game. I seem to remember that biplane sequence that happens on the zeppelin being really really long in the first in the first cut but i don't i don't remember exactly and it may have been long just because there were so many of those you know big missing special effects cards that showed up in the movie it just made it feel longer i don't remember okay on to phil question for david when working on cadillacs and dinosaurs did you have any plans for other sequences or gameplay mechanics yeah that was my most embarrassing game I ever did. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you didn't say Maniac Mansion. <laughs> that was for Rocket. That was for Rocket Science, right? Yeah, right. Rocket, different company. Um, the the design of that had eleven different levels, and each level had a different mechanic and different different activities and different things you did. And when it came down to implementing them, their art pipeline was taking so long that they we ended up cutting it. To, making essentially two different mechanics instead of 11 and the game just got really repetitious and and frustratingly crappy so um so the answer is yes david why don't you say what you really think can't don't candy code it come on. <laughs> 
art was great in the PC version. I think they came out afterwards. You know, they did some really nice artwork and animation, but the gameplay was just too repetitious. Uh, Sushi wants to know, some of you guys mentioned your children before the podcast. Did any of them play the old Lucasfilm adventure games? And do you remember if they like them or not? My daughter was about nine or 10 at the time that our games were coming out. And she was uh, definitely, she was an avid play tester. She would went through the whole, through the entire games and, and she would ask for hints and, and it was great. I mean, I was treating her like a play tester. I think she probably ended up in the credits. My son was probably a little too young at the time, so he didn't get to play those at the time. Yeah, I, I'm the only other one with kids because unless Ron's dogs or whatever played games, um, that 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 never happened. But my kids just like to blow shit up too much, so they never really played any of those games. I'm hoping they'll play Thimbleweed Park because it'll be you know contemporarily available on the systems that they're you know actually using. Whereas I think when my kids were even old enough to play games, it was too late to play them on any system other than maybe Scum VM or something like that. So. Uh, we'll see. You could force them to play. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's it. I think. I think for punishment, Ron, I'll force them <laughs> to play this game. Uh, you didn't do your homework. You're playing Thimbleweed Park. All right, Nick asks if you were to win the lottery tomorrow, would you still work on Thimbleweed Park? Uh, no, absolutely not. If I if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would just vanish, and you would never hear from me again. Okay. Well, you know, comforting to know, Ron. Hey, I'm just I'm just being honest. I, I would I'd probably still work on it. I, I'm definitely not doing this for the money. I'm doing it for the fun. So I might have to take a vacation though. Okay, next one is Dog Lobster. Given the creative freedom afforded to you to make games this way, is this the way you always want to make them from now on? Uh yeah, I mean there's we yeah, I, I think we talked about this in like a previous podcast. I think I think we've all had a lot of creative freedom, you know, in our careers. And we certainly did back at Lucasfilm. You know, there was um, you know, very little oversight to what we were doing and you could just um, you know, just do whatever you thought was interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't remember ever anyone coming to us and saying, I'm sorry you have to cut that. Except maybe maybe when we did the you guys did the Nintendo version of Maniac Mansion. Yeah, there was a lot of weird censorship on that on that stuff. But yeah, I think you know generally, and then I think the rest of my career, you know, Humongous Entertainment. After that, you know, I was running the company, so I had a lot of freedom. And you know, I think every game I've really done, I've had a whole lot of freedom yeah. on. Having worked for other people quite a bit more so than either of you guys, I think, just because of the nature of um, you know contract artwork. Uh, I I now realize what a, what a you know unusual situation that was to be in. Kind of for the first time, I really worked in an industry where there was sort of no um, oversight, and it just pretty much we were able to do whatever we wanted to. Uh, certainly, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this because this is very similar to that experience for me. So um, you know, I'm really enjoying this, and I I, I certainly prefer doing it this way. I think too much creative freedom can also be bad sometimes. I think it is it is important to work within constraints, and if you know if you have that self discipline to constrain yourself, then I I think it kind of can you know it can work okay. But if if you can just do anything you want, um, I think people people will often create a mess because they don't have those constraints. Well, yeah, and it'll just go on forever too. <laughs> yeah, and and never finish. All right, Samuel Kook asks. In the dialogue recording, will the main actors be recording their lines together at the same session? Probably not. That's that's really hard to do in games because 
you know, you're not recording these scenes like you are in a movie. You know, you're just you're recording a lot of lines and sometimes lines get said with some actor and sometimes they might you know be said with two or three actors. And so you just you never really know with that stuff. So I, I found that that is really difficult to do. And it's also a cost thing. You know, you end up having to pay actors to be in the studio when, you know, they only have a couple of lines that they need to read and they have to hang around. So I, I think for a game like Thimbleweed, we'll probably record all the actors um, separately. It's the way I've always done it. I don't think I've ever done a game where the actors were in the studio at the same time. Yeah, he also asks about how do you handle it when there's like inf- difference in, in pronunciations or inflections and that's really the job of the director to catch that stuff. And I, I guess if there's a word that's really unusual, then maybe you make sure you say it ahead of time so they can get it right. It's it's not a huge it's not a huge problem. I mean, you 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 know you do need to worry about it because of the way the games are recorded and lines can be said in a lot of different situations. The way that it's all kind of randomly put together. You know, when I'm when I am kind of going through and they're recording it, I I really will keep an eye out for that stuff. You know, because I do know the game really well, and if people will say a line in a certain way, and I say, okay, well, you need to say it this way because it can actually be used in three different situations. So you just have to keep track of that stuff. I think it's one of the things that makes recording for games particularly hard, you know, not only on the, you know, the person doing the directing, but also the actors. I mean, I think obviously in this case too, Ron, since you're going to be doing the um, voice recording, I guess in Seattle, you'll probably be there for most of the really important stuff, correct? I'll be there for all the sessions. Yeah. So you'll be able to make sure that that happens. Yeah. Yeah. So Ron, Ron knows if someone says thimbleweed instead of thimbleweed, something he can say no that's not how you say it thimble beeping weed that's the way ransom would say it all right kevin drum asks what are your thoughts on adventure game ui uh i.e the verbs at the bottom versus the wheel like used in the special editions versus no verbs uh no verbs at all you know i think i i like the verb interface i think that's pretty obvious by now that i like that i really don't like the whole wheel interface um you know that kind of came about you know, after I left Lucasfilm, I think that I stayed on Lucasfilm, you know, I, do, I don't know that I ever would have used that interface. I don't know. I don't, you know, I can't say what I would have used, but I just, I don't like the wheel interface at all. I don't really know why it's hard to articulate that, but I do like just having the verbs on the screen. I think the no verb interfaces can work as long as you're not just kind of using them as a replacement for a verb interface and just a use verb. I think you have to design a slightly different game. And I think one of the problems with the whole no verb interface is at least initially people didn't redesign their games. They just made it made a click be use and didn't think about it beyond that. And I think that's where it kind of became, you know, really cumbersome. Where some of the more modern adventure games out there who don't have kind of that baggage of that interface are doing more interesting things um, with just a single click interface. So Andy Hall says, hi, Ron. Hello, Andy. Can you give me some detail on your plans for the retro pixel mode? The retro pixel mode is, is essentially going to kind of get rid of all of the weird, you know, hardware tricks that we're playing with the pixels. 
things you know things like i don't know that it's going to get rid of the lighting i think if you take away the lighting that's done with the shaders i think things get really messed up so i think the lighting may stay but what it is going to do is it is going to make sure that all of the pixels are perfectly aligned on pixel boundaries because right now we we don't um adhere to that in the non in the non-pixel purist mode so if you know parallax layers are scrolling around in the background they don't move on perfect pixel boundaries. They're allowed to kind of move on sub-pixel boundaries as well as the scrolling, just because I think it's just a lot more pleasant and a lot more interesting. So what the pixel purist mode will do is just lock all the pixels down. So, you know, pixels are pixels. And when the characters scale, you know, because they're moving, you know, in and out of the background, those pixels will be scaling more like, you know, like Monkey Island did scaling uh, as opposed to smooth scalings done with the hardware. So that's that's kind of the changes. And it's actually not, not hard to do at all because things are just kind of rendered to a buffer and we just render things to a, you know, to a buffer that's at the correct pixel range rather than a buffer that's at the screen resolution so i don't think it'll be that uh, i mean i've seen it we're using it right now we can play it so it's really not that hard to do how do you think like rotation stuff would work i think it's gonna look like crap <laughs> i think i think a lot of the stuff is gonna is, is really gonna kind of not look good and i go back you know i went back and i played you know monkey island and i looked at that scaling and i mean Guybrush looks horrible when he's scaling when he's walking down that cliff. And I think at the time it was just so marvelous to see somebody scaling. We almost didn't notice the fact that they actually look so horrible. So I think the retro pixel mode is kind of an interesting mode, but I really do think that when people you know pop back to that mode and they play the game in the mode, I think they will they will find it curious, but I think they will move back and, and play in the in the normal mode because it's just so much more pleasant and interesting in my mind. But it's there. It's there for people who want it. Nord Treblig asks, would you use Git again for game development? A lot of AAA studios seem to use Perforce or SVN um, because they're better at handling a lot of binary data. Yeah, I really like Git. I like Git a lot, and I, I like it because it's kind of distributed, and I like it because you don't have to be online, and you can still, you know, check out files and you know do commits, and you don't have to be connected. Where, at least the last time I used Perforce, you know, you really had to be connected to the Perforce server. There really wasn't much, you know, that you could do without kind of having to kludge around it to get things to work. Um, I know Perforce has like a free mode, like you can use it with like four users or something, but Perforce is pretty expensive when you get beyond that. And I think for, you know, Thubweed Park where, you know, there's like probably 10 or so people that might need access to it, um, using Perforce might be prohibitively expensive. Um, I've used SVN quite a bit, you know, and I like that. I think SVN is good. But uh, I just like the distributed nature of Git, and our our binary data is really small. I mean, we're working in these, you know, this kind of eight bit art, so we really don't have the same binary issue. I think the one issue that is a little cumbersome sometimes is that you can't, you know, lock a file in Git. So if Gary's going to do art on something, he can't lock the Photoshop file, which means you know uh, David or I could, you know, potentially change that file. So we just have to communicate a little bit more about who's uh, who has files out that they're working on. But yeah, I would use Git again. I would use it without, without thinking much about it. Simon Simon, how do you feel about Let's Play videos of adventure games, and do you think it impacts sales? 
Yeah, let's play videos of adventure games. There's definitely a little a rocky road between those two things. And, you know, let's play videos with adventure games can be a problem because, you know, especially if it's a short adventure game, you know, you can just play through the whole thing and you can see everything and you're not really, you know, there's no incentive for me to go out and buy the game because I've, you know, I've seen the whole thing in the let's play video. So, so I, I think there's a little bit of a problem with that. I mean, some of that comes from, you know, adventure games being short. And I think some the other part of it, I think, is you want to, I think for Let's Play videos to really work, I think you need to really kind of funny, weird things that the people who are doing them kind of play and experience and have a lot of fun. And I think if they're done right, I think they can really help sales. I think if, if they're done wrong, then they can um, hurt sales. You know, does, does someone actually go through the entire game and post that or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if, if you get a small adventure game that can be completed in a few hours, you know, the, the whole thing is just up there on the Let's Play video from beginning to end. So I guess you could ask the same question as if someone posts a commercial movie and you watch that on, on YouTube, are you going to go and buy it? Everything's been spoiled. The only reason to do it on your own is just to see it maybe in higher higher resolution or something. But for an adventure game, once you see the puzzles being solved, then you really... Most of the fun is, I think, the figuring it out, and that would be killed for you by watching someone else do it. Yeah, that's very true with adventure games and the puzzles and stuff. But I don't think it's something you can stop. You know, I mean, Let's Play videos are here to stay, you know, whether you like them or not. So I think it's something you just kind of have to deal with and, and work with um, a little bit. But I think length has a lot to do with it. Jeff wants to know, given your vast experience and knowledge of the games industry, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about games being released that are extremely buggy or so broken that they require day one patches out of the box. It seems that in the last couple of years, this problem has been increasing at an alarming rate. I think this problem has kind of always been a problem since you could patch things. I know, you know, back at Lucasfilm and also, you know, during all the years at Humongous Entertainment, there was no way to patch stuff. So you just spent a lot of time making sure that it was right because you had to spend an enormous amount of money to go get floppy disks manufactured or CDs burnt. And even though a lot of AAA games are still getting CDs burnt, they know they can just patch it. So... I, I think I think there's just always that knowledge as much as you want to say as a developer that you're not going to do that. There's just always this thing in this back of your head that says you can patch it. And I think it just it causes you to maybe not uh, kind of focus on that stuff as much as you could. I mean, we'll certainly try to make Thimbleweed Park, you know, release with no patches. But I think that's kind of, uh, you know, unrealistic. Back back in the day, too, the, it was, you know, mostly a, a cost thing, because if you know, you couldn't download the patch online easily, if at all. So that meant, you know, having to send everyone replacement discs or make them available. And so you have to both produce them and you have to send them out and there's postage and, and that's just really expensive. So you could probably ruin a whole bunch of your profit from a game if, if you had to do it back then. Yeah, I think it's just a cost balance. You know, how much money you spend on testing versus how much money is that bug, you know, going to cost you. And, you know, back before, you know, day one patches, you know, it was easy to say, well, we'll spend a whole lot of money, you know, to not have any bugs because it's expensive. But now, you know, you can just, you can just patch it. So I don't know the one's necessarily worse than the other in some ways. I mean, it's nice to release a completely bug-free game, but 
you know, maybe it's maybe it's better to do the patches. I don't know. Good question. Barry wants to know, have you considered controlling both agents at the same time? So they walk together and talk with the townspeople like a duo as you would actually do it in real life if you had a partner. Yeah, it's something we talked about, whether they should split up or not. And right at the beginning of the game, they do stay together um, because it is kind of important for some of the early uh, cutscenes and dialogues that you know they kind of are a unit so they hear everything at the same time but just in terms of you know really the logistics of follow code you know getting getting an actor to follow another one around the game and to be able to walk in and out of doors and do all of those things is is a lot of is a lot of work to do that stuff and i know it kind of sounds simple to get somebody to follow but it's one of those one of those things that can become a pit of bugs really, really fast. And I think we just kind of made the decision, you know what, there's a lot of places where you want the agents to split up and it doesn't really harm the adventure game at all to have them split up. And uh, so we just decided to just not kind of deal with the complexity of, of follow code that, that happens with that kind of stuff. And it's also a UI thing. It's like, well, when do you want them to follow? When do you want them to split up? You know, now I don't want them to follow. It was just simpler to just not do it. And I don't think it affects the game really that much at all. And I think also with Ray and Reyes, you know, despite what a lot of people think, this is not Mulder and Scully. You know, they, they are not happy partners who love each other. So having them split up and not do things together uh, it actually isn't that strange for the game and the story and what's going on. Next up is Darkstorm. All right, Darkstorm wants to know, if you're allowed to say, what advantages are there to a deal with Microsoft? It seems to hamstring you in the last couple of months of development, and neither Sony or Nintendo have such a restrictive launch parity agreement. Um, well, either does Microsoft. I mean, uh, Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo, uh, you, you could release on those platforms all at the same time. You can really do whatever you want. The thing with Microsoft was that Microsoft gave us a bunch of money. And, you know, because this game was kickstarted, we really couldn't afford to do a console port with the Kickstarter money. We needed that money to finish the game, to make the game that we had promised the backers. So if we were going to do a console version, we needed to get money from somewhere. And Microsoft was willing to give us enough money to completely do uh, the Xbox port. Um, and we talked to both Microsoft and Sony about it. Um, and the, the terms that Sony had were just a lot more restrictive uh, in terms of uh, you know being able to give us money where Microsoft's were actually very generous and it worked out really well. So the reason that there is that three month window that Microsoft has exclusive, you know, isn't because Microsoft just requires that. It's just it's that Microsoft gave us a bunch of money and essentially that's what they bought. You know, they bought that three month exclusive. If Microsoft hadn't given us the money, we could have released on all the platforms at once or staggered them however we wanted them to be. And I think if you ever see a deal you know, ever see a situation where a game has an exclusive on a particular platform, it's because those people got money from that platform. You know, it is something that the platform manufacturers pay to have exclusive. So that's why that stuff happens. Sushi wants to know, you've never really mentioned sound effects. Who is taking care of those and how will they be done? Will you record your own or use a library? Um, yeah, the sound effects we haven't done. We haven't talked a lot about the sound effects. Um, I would say mostly David is doing the sound effects. You know, I've done some, but uh, he's probably done most of them in the game. And I have a library of of CDs, and I and Ron has an account. Yeah, Ron has an account on SoundSnap, 
So I often either can find an effect which works, or I might combine effects or edit them, um, you know, edit them to, to make them last the amount of time they should for an animation. Um, there are a few that I had a real lot of fun where I'd actually, you know, do a video capture of the screen and then score the sound to the to the animation. But I'm treating most of these at, like they're placeholder and just getting in something pretty fast so that it works. And then we go back, figure and polish and figure out which ones are wrong. And, you know, if we need to get someone else to help us with some more complicated ones. Yes, yeah, I'd say generally the sounds are pretty good. I mean, there's only a couple I've, I've kind of heard and said, okay, yeah, we definitely need to replace that. You know, we don't really have the budget to hire a sound effects person. So, you know, if, if I had, you know, if I had my druthers, you know, we would have a sound effects person, kind of like we have a music person. We'd have somebody whose sole job it was, was to do all the sound effects. But we just we don't have the budget to afford that, so I think that is that work is just going to fall on, uh, you know, probably David and I to do that kind of stuff. All right, and the very last question is from Peter Broderson. Are you still using the Testertron 3000? Are there specific puzzles that it can just never solve through random clicking? Uh, yeah, we are still using uh, the Testertron for that stuff. Um, and there definitely are puzzles that it cannot solve. As the game gets more sophisticated, um, you're just kind of randomly kicking around the screen, just isn't going to do stuff. You know, it can work its way through dialogue puzzles just by randomly clicking on stuff. But it, it has some limitations in being able to use um, inventory items with other inventory items. It can't really do that yet. So that's something I need to change. But since it really is just randomly figuring stuff out, it's hard to imagine that Testertron would ever be able to get through the game from beginning to end just because it, it kind of gets stuck. And I think the way that we really use Testertron isn't really to have it play through the whole game. It's at night, we'll kind of say, look, we want Testertron to mess around, you know, in this little area of the game, you know, so the tester will take a character into that area and then turn on Testertron and then go to bed and just kind of let it mess around in that area. So it's it's not really a way to kind of solve the game. It's more of a way just to kind of, you know, beat up on the rooms uh, overnight. Okay, I think that is it. Do you guys have anything else to add? Yeah, actually, I had a question for the two of you guys. You should post it in the comment section, Gary. <laughs> um, it's posted in the comments section right now. You guys just don't see it. But in any case, um, so this shows how much I know about coding or don't know about coding. So I don't know if either of you guys watch the Silicon Valley TV show, which, you know, yeah, I do. I'm addicted to. So I'm watching this show, and the main guy gets a girlfriend and they're both computer programmers. He like works for his company and she works for Facebook or something. They're sitting around together in the evening. You know, they're both sitting there with their laptops coding. And they end up having a big fight. And the big fight is over whether or not, you know, spaces or tabs is better. And <laughs> and I'm like watching this thing going, is this funny to somebody who actually, you know, codes you know, computer code because it seems really funny, but is it like really something that people would actually give a shit about? So I'm curious. Yeah, spaces and tabs is a huge debate. I I could really see you know having an argument you know with your uh, with your significant other about whether it was tabs or spaces were right. It's it's a weird religious thing. I think some of it kind of has to do with you know how you started or what language you use or what editors you use just kind of shifts you in a certain way. But I'm I'm definitely a, a tab person. I'm not a space person. And then part of the argument is when you compile it, it looks the same. Is that true or not? Yeah, it is true. I mean, it, the tabs, well, unless you're using a language like Python, 
um, which which it can matter. I mean, you can use spaces or tabs with Python, but Python is very particular about the white space indenting, so you have to worry about that a lot more. But yeah, in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter to the compiler whether it's spaces or tabs. It's just one of those weird little personal preferences that programmers have. But I've had these discussions. I, I have absolutely had discussions with people about tabs versus spaces, and people get very hostile about it at some point. It's quite amazing. So you, you, you're, you're a tab person, David, right? I, I don't care. I mean, yeah, I probably am. I mean, well, why don't you care? You should really care. I think BB Edit lets you change how it, how it treats them. So I'll just set it however it is. I think I use tabs. Uh, the two of you guys aren't going to be able to get along, right? I don't remember if, what Ron <laughs> said he liked. I don't well, I think there's a there's a setting in Get where you can convert all the you know tabs to spaces or spaces to mm. tabs when people check in stuff. So I guess you can kind of through this passive aggressive system if you want, uh, you know, get everybody to do whatever you want. All right. Well, thanks a lot, everyone, and uh, okay. I will uh, talk to you guys next week. Okay. Because we don't we don't talk at all normally during the week. Uh, it's only only these podcasts are the only uh, time. You know, this is the talk. only chance we get to actually like find out about each other's lives. <laughs> and the, and the truth is, I I just don't care. Yeah, it's mutual. Okay. <laughs> all right. See you guys later. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. bye. Next up is Christopher Griffin. Seems like game developers like to ship oh, oh, homages. 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 When I was reading, I just read the H because I hadn't finished the whole word yet. They like to slip ma- mansion, mansion. <laughs> mansion, mansion. I saw one of, the, one of the testers flag that as a typo. <laughs> <laughs> Notice I changed the capitalization, so it's now the Edmund Mansion Mansion. So it's like the name is called Edmund Mansion, and then it's a mansion. So it's called the Edmund Mansion Mansion. <laughs>